Hello and welcome to the Researcher Podcast, your regular look at the research that's making waves in the scientific community and the people behind it. My name is Joe Fenton and I will be your host. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Rick Tavinsky from the University of Alberta. Rick was recently a speaker at the University of Oxford's CuraPi conference. Before we begin, let me give you a quick introduction to the CuraPi conference. This year, Mount the third edition of this specific conference, hosted by Professor Harry Anderson at the University of Oxford. This international symposium discussed the latest developments in the chemistry and physics of pi conjugated molecules. So today we'll be finding out a bit more about the conference, as well as Rick and his CuraPi presentation. Rick, thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So before we get into the conference and your research that you presented at the conference. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your academic career so far? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I've been a professor, I guess, for a little bit more than 20 years, um, split between the University of Alberta, where I am now, and Erlangen in Germany. And for pretty much that entire time, I've worked along with my research group on uh, what we call physical organic chemistry, which is just a fancy way of saying that we are interested in how a structure of a molecule affects um, its properties. And so we've uh, made a, a wide variety of, of conjugated molecules and, and, and looked at how the, their absolute molecular structure affects the, the properties that they uh, um, that they display. And, and hopefully, um, if we design them correctly, we can make them useful at some point. So obviously you've been working on these molecules and looking at their properties and structures for a very long time now. So if we take a step back to maybe the beginning of your academic career, what made you interested, or if I rephrase the question, what motivated you to look at this specific research in the first place? Um, motivated it, uh, I mean, the, 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 the best answer is, is curiosity, but the, the origin of the project is actually kind of, of ironic in the sense that when I was very young as an assistant professor, I was teaching um, what we call sophomore organics. So it's the general, the first organic course that, that students take when they come to university. And if you go to pretty much any textbook that one would use for, for sophomore organic, you find great descriptions of, of diamond and, and SP3 carbon, and you find great descriptions of, of graphite and now graphene and the fullerenes and nanotubes and how wonderful they are. And, and then that's where it, where it ends. And, and there's, there's really, you know, they describe acetylene, but, the, but, there's no uh, what comes beyond that. What if you could make this uh, this this molecule or a polyene, a long polyene, or or carbine? What what would be its properties? And so obviously, diamond and graphite or graphene have fantastic uh, properties, uh, both of their own um, as well as you know industrial industrially relevant properties. And so we were curious, you know, could we make carbine and and would it be useful? And and so the initial motivation was, you know, almost you could simply to, to simply putting this or answering this question in a, in a general uh, organic textbook. I uh, mean, it's, it's far, it's more, it's complicated than that, but I mean, that was uh, some of our initial discussions is, you know, could we, could we put this into a textbook? So as I mentioned in the introduction, you were recently a speaker at the University of Oxford's CuraPi conference. Could you tell us a little bit about the paper that you presented there? 
Sure. It's uh, um, the, the area that we're working in for that particular paper has to do with what happens if you take a, a, a polyine or something we call a cumulene, which is again made out of these same type of SP hybridized building blocks. And what happens if you, you bend it? So how does this affect its properties? And I mean, that's a, a simple question, but at the very end of, of this question or this hypothesis is what happens if you make a, a, a molecule that's a ring um, or a circle that's made only of these, these building blocks because it's been, uh, uh, predicted to have really fantastic properties. And this is a, a, I've known Harry Anderson, the, the organizer of the conference for about 25 years. We were postdocs together in, in Switzerland. And, and Harry has always had an interest in the, these uh, uh, cyclic structures and I knew he was working on it. And so this was some of the motivation to, to, to discuss with him um, his progress towards making the, you know, the ultimate goal, but also to, to reveal what we found on small segments on it. Um, as you take this molecule that wants to be linear and, and start to, to bend it um, and, and see what happens. Is it stable? Um, does it affect the properties? Um, can it be made synthetically? Um, a lot of these are very fundamental questions, but they're uh, really of the utmost importance. If you're going to take a graduate student and ask them to, to try to make the, the, the real thing, you should have a, uh, at least a, a reasonable idea that it's possible. So with this theoretical framework and your attempts to change the structure of these molecules. What can this lead to in either the real world, so to speak, or in the academic world? Um, you know, the the real world is much harder because most uh, most chemistry inventions or molecular inventions it takes a while before they're they're actually. Uh, found to be useful. I mean, this particular molecule, it would be a, a new form of, of carbon. So, I mean, it would go into the lineage of, of graphite, diamond, fullerenes, and then you'd have the cyclocarbons. And so uh, fundamentally, it would be quite exciting because it's not every day that you can create a, a new form of carbon, you know, in the, the, the time that uh, either nature or man has been making uh, uh, molecules or materials, there's you know, less than 10 different types of, of carbon approximately that you could classify, and this would be a new one. So um, so fundamentally, it would just be a, an interest in, okay, now we've completed this series, how do the properties of, of carbine compare to graphene or or, um, or diamond? But it's, it's almost as much a synthetic um, um, success or a synthetic achievement in the sense that we've targeted something that a lot of people would say couldn't be made um, or Harry has tar targeted it and it's been done. We've developed uh, ways to, to cheat the system and, and make the molecules. So conferences are a time when scientists can get together, they can discuss their findings and their research. So with your particular research, what kind of reception did you get from your peers and colleagues at the CuraPi conference? Um, curiosity. I mean, that, and that was the... The, the hoped response in a sense that um, one of the reasons that I, I chose Kuro Pai was that the, it, I hadn't been to this is so the Kuro, this is the third of the Kuro Pai series and I had not been to the first two but when I looked at the speakers of the first two it seemed like a, a, a conference that was still put a, a, a large value on um, the synthetic efforts that go into making these molecules and that the fact that 
Um, you didn't have to defend it with putting it into a device or showing that, you know, you could uh, sell it to industry. It was just a, a curiosity of what happens to molecules um, when you curve them or make them curved, which is the, the title of, of the conference. And so, you know, when, I, when it was presented, it, there is obviously a link between what we were doing and what uh, Harry's students were putting on posters at the posters session. And, and so there was a, you know, a great discussion of, you know, have you thought about this or will you make them longer? Can you make them longer? Um, will they be stable? Will Harry's molecules be stable? And, and that was exactly the, the desire to, uh, or the, what I had hoped is that people would find what we were doing interesting and, and perhaps even motivate them to, to take on some aspect of, of this uh, general area of chemistry. Curiosity seems to be a key word for yourself, and it seems to be a staple of your academic career. So for a curious mind like yourself, who do you believe gave the most interesting presentation of their research whilst at Curapai? Yeah, I was, yeah, I was almost afraid of that question in the in the sense that you know it's it's really hmm, it's almost an impossible question to 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 answer. But I'll give you I'll give you two. The actually the first talk um, was by a guy named Kenny Tommy um, from Nagoya in Japan, and the 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 molecules that he's made and the ideas he's had for making graphene like molecules and materials there is always fantastic and and you can see him talk every 6 months and and he doesn't have to repeat anything because he's clever he's got a great group and and the molecules that he puts out there you you'd look at them and say this can never be made and somehow he finds a way to to make it and so Ken was the the plenary lecturer and so you know it was expected him to be good but he's all it's always amazing and then the the last talk was a, from a, a researcher from germany named uh, uh reiner hergays and um reiner has is one of the the, the best physical organic chemists i hope he doesn't uh, take offense to me calling him that but um of our of our era and that he, he um, decides he wants to do something. So at this point, he's looking at controlling the magnetic state of a molecule on a molecular sensor, on a molecular uh, scale. And this would be similar to the way uh, many uh, computer devices uh, um, record memory. And so he's trying to do this on a, on a molecular scale. And, and he's found a number of ways to do it, but he does it through understanding um, of every aspect of his molecules. And he, and he, and he gives a fantastic talk because it could be a very complicated topic, but, but he finds a way to present it so that, you know, it draws the audience in and, and you know exactly what he's thinking and why he did this and, and perhaps why he didn't do something else. And so it's just really, you know, you, you, when he's done, you're like, wow, that was good. So obviously conferences are an important part of any academic's career. So just how influential have conferences been to yourself and your own academic development? Um, I, I guess I would, I would change, instead of saying influential, I would say motivational. Um, and in two ways, you know, one is if one just sits in, in their own labs, in their own office, you somehow, um, you know, it's exciting and it's still your chemistry, but it's only when you go out and find out that other people are interested in, in what we're doing that 
it really motivates you. It's like, oh, okay, so you know what I'm doing does have an impact, and people are are interested to see what we're doing. And this is even more important for the for the students because as a PhD student, you're typically focused on a on a on an endpoint. I need to make these molecules so I can get my PhD and I can get out of here. And they go to a conference and and other students and postdocs and professors engage them and start talking to them about their uh, about their molecules and, and tell them, that, oh, yeah, I saw your paper. And for, so for a Ph.D. student to have a professor from halfway around the world know of their research, um, this is incredibly motivating. And they often get good ideas from these people. These are experts in the field um, and they'll come back from a conference with a whole list of things that you know, we should do with this. We should do that. And I mean, of course, we can't do everything, but, it, but the motivational aspect of it. Is, is is absolutely fantastic. I really like this idea of motivation being a key aspect to take away from conferences. So for any kind of PhDs or young academics who are attending their first conferences, do you have any advice for them so they, like yourself, can learn, talk and return with more motivation than they had before they arrived? Um, to, to make, to make the most of it, to, to, to talk to people, um, to, you know, when, when you recognize a professor that comes up to your poster and there's that awkward three seconds of silence where they don't say anything and you don't say anything, find something to say, you know, as, as simple as, you know, can I tell you something about my poster? Would you let me tell you something about my poster? Um, because, you know, often that's, that's all it takes. Um, you know, sometimes they, they're just looking, but, but often, you know, they'll, they'll say, yeah, you know, I, I've seen this structure before. Um, and, and that's the beginning of a conversation that might last one minute. It might last 10 minutes, but if you've engaged that person, um, you never know, you know, that might be the person that you'll go on to do a postdoc with, or, um, you'll leave the conference and you'll be on a bus and you'll be sitting next to this person and you already have this, uh, um, this, this, uh, beginning of a rapport with them and you never know where it's going to lead. So, so don't just sit there and watch and look and be shy and, you know, it's hard. I mean, it's, I'm not naturally an outgoing person. And so it's hard for me to, to, engage somebody just out of the blue but but find a way to do it summon up your suitcase of courage and and uh, and, and find a way to do it so obviously poster sessions are an instrumental part of conferences so whilst walking around the cura pie conference were there any posters that really captured your interest and sparked your curiosity at all <laughs> do you know do you know where harry had the uh, the poster session was it not in the Natural History Museum? It was. If you've ever been there, it's the absolute most fantastic venue for a poster session that I have ever seen at a conference because there were literally poster boards at the feet of Tyrannosaurus Rex, right? And so, so that was the first thing that sparked my interest. But, um, but the, I mean, on a scientific level, um, the 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 level of the posters was 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 absolutely incredible. I mean, the the students that were there um, were obviously very proud of what they had done. They they and and not just the students. I mean, the postdocs and the, and the, uh, the faculty that presented um, and and all all of them had interesting molecules, interesting properties, interesting um, correlations between the the structure and function. I think. 
probably the, the, the most global aspect of it is simply that you, know, you look at the molecules that have been made and they're up on these posters and you, you really think, wow, you know, 10 years ago, nobody would have ever thought we could have made a, a segment of graphene that, the, you know, that, that's built up out of 120 carbon atoms. You know, it's just synthetically we're, we're moving so quickly and so efficiently towards, towards, uh, towards new systems. It's just, it's really, really incredible. So as you say, molecules and chemistry in general has advanced a lot over the last 10 years. But have conferences changed at all in the last, say, 10, 20, possibly even 30 years? Um, some have. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of conferences that are now organized commercially so that the, the idea of the conference is to, is to make money for some company. Um, and, and a lot of, not a lot, but a, a fair number of people will go to these because they have a, they're in a, a beautiful venue or there's a particular set of speakers that the conference has organized to draw people there. I mean, so that's, I would say that that's a, a change that you wouldn't have seen 20 years ago. You wouldn't have seen for-profit conferences in that particular commercial conferences. Um, and I think what's happened is, is so people are drawn often to, you know, in the, more recently to, to smaller conferences, much like the, the Kiro Pai. I think uh, Harry said that there were about 140 people or 150 people that attended this. And so, you know, people want to, you know, researchers want to go where you, you don't have to choose between which session you go to listen to if you want to listen to both people, but they're at the same time, you have to choose. Whereas a, a smaller conference, there's only one talk at any given time and, and you can just sit down and you can, you can listen and you can think and you can interact with everybody at the conference um, and actually participate. It's that you're not just there as a spectator, you're there to, to participate and, and, and you're welcomed into it because it's a small group of people. So these smaller conferences contain less amount of people but the subject is sort of experts in a very niche area it's you know as you say it's it, it might be or it might be a way for a person to find um you know maybe i maybe i want to change direction so the the you know, the, the project that I presented at Kiropai, we haven't really worked in that particular area in about 10 years. It's I saw Kiropai as a way to, to enter back into this curved uh, conjugated molecule community. And so, you know, maybe it's not my area of expertise or somebody's area of expertise at a time, at any given time, but it's a great way to, to jump into the, to the, to the area and say, yep, here I am. Here's what I'm doing. Do you like it? Well, I've attended well, a couple of conferences now, obviously through researcher rather than as an academic, but I've never even considered the use of conferences for this. And I guess it's another really good piece of advice for anybody, well, any young PhD or any young academic who wants to jump in and do exactly as you were saying. Well, with conferences being global and obviously having travelled from at the University of Alberta to the University of Oxford, and I'm guessing you've also been to many other cities. How much time do you get to explore the city that the conference is hosted in? <laughs> um, sometimes a reasonable amount if I have a friend or or a particular place or somebody will actually uh, organize a 
a field trip or something, uh, a time to go see a landmark that is in that particular city. But you know, the the probably the the the, the worst kept secret of, of conferences is that most professors, you know, as they as they run out of time trying to balance work and their family spend a rather unfortunate amount of time in their hotel room trying to get their talk ready for the presentation the next day. And, and often we lose out just because it's a, you know, we, we've got things to do. It's a nice quiet hotel room and, and we can actually get things done. And so um, the, you know, it's, sometimes we don't see anything, you know, and, and um, but that's a choice, you know, it's a choice that we, we make because we're, we're, as a, as a group quite motivated to, to succeed. And, and so we, we take that free time, if you will, that, you know, where nobody's asking us for anything. Often we don't have a telephone ringing or, or emails and we take it to, to think, to think about our research, to think about our talk. Um, and, you know, sometimes we miss some of the, the, the local, um, the, the local offerings. Although, you know, invariably we end up walking around in the evening for dinner and, and finding a nice, uh, uh, a pub or a nice uh, bar somewhere in the town. And, and that's often our, our exposure to the local culture. And Oxford was no different. Yeah, of course, because we um, attended the 255th ACS conference hosted in New Orleans. And as you say, it was very much New Orleans by night. So walking around trying to find a restaurant or a bar, and that and that is how you soak up the local culture, I guess. <laughs> I mean, you can't can't go there without going and, and 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 checking it out. Yeah, it's really true. So I'm going to move on to the personal questions section of this particular podcast and ask you throughout your whole career, starting as a young academic in even at the stage you're at now, who has been the most influential for yourself and your work? Um, I think that's, I mean, there have been people that have influenced my career as I became, or after I became an academic, but I think, you know, much like a, a child is, is often influenced by their parents to the greatest extent for me, that, that would be true of my academic career. I was fortunate from uh, this is my second year in a university to be involved with uh, Professor Ron Capel when I was a, an undergraduate. Got me hooked on on research, gave me opportunities, um, let me let me fail and and learn from it. Uh, my PhD supervisor Peter Stang gave me the the resources and the guidance and the the opportunity to to develop my own ideas. Um, Francois Diederich is, is, is almost a legend in producing academic, uh, people just because of, you know, I don't even know, I can't even say, um, but I mean, Harry, uh, Harry Anderson moved through, uh, through his group and, and you've seen where Harry's ended up. Um, you know, he, he somehow motivates you to, to act on your curiosity, much like my son would ask me, why, why is the grass green? Um, on a on a chemistry level, Francois somehow teaches people how to to ask questions that other people are are interested in, and and um, and challenges us to to find ways to solve these questions, and gives us the the motivation to to, to actually to do it, and say you know, and to even if there isn't an obvious use for it, the if the question is is significant enough, um, that's that's good enough, right? It doesn't have to be. You don't have to be able to sell it to make money off of it for it to be important. So, so I'd say, I mean, the, my three mentors uh, uh, throughout my education uh, by far and still influence me today. 
So obviously you've had a very, very successful academic career. Do you have any advice or tips or tricks for any PhD students or young academics to increase their productivity? <laughs> um, you know, I wish there there were. I, I, I almost... I almost don't increase efficiency too quickly because what happened for me is I, I became so efficient in my early career that I was running at about 100% efficiency, at least from what I could tell. And then I had children. And and because I was so efficient, there was no room for increasing efficiency. And, and the time that I wanted to dedicate to my kids, um, I had to just simply take from somewhere else. And so just keep a perspective, right? You know, efficiency and, and more productivity is maybe not always the best thing. Try to balance it. I mean, I, I, I love biking. I love mountain biking. And so I make a, uh, an effort almost every day to either commute into work or to, to, to have fun and not forget that, you know, there's other things uh, besides my research to that are important, you know, and especially my family, family should always come first. Don't give that up because at the end of the day, another Angavanta paper is far less important than, than a parent teacher conference or watching your, your kid's first um, violin recital, no matter how painful it might be. So in your introduction, you said that you have been a professor for what, 20 years now. So obviously you've supervised many PhD students and you've seen many young academics begin their career and obviously yourself you've been in academia for some time now so you know how it works fundamentally so what would be your one piece of advice for somebody starting their phd or for somebody who is just beginning their academic career um it it sounds i mean for a phd student it sounds kind of cliche but but make sure you love your project make it your project because if you're just doing it because somebody told you you need to do it or you somebody told you that this is the best way to get a job but you, you don't really you're not excited about the question you're asking or you're not excited about the molecules you're making then then you know you're really missing out on an opportunity for to, to make something yours, right? It, you know, your PhD research, by the time you're done, you should be the world expert on it and it should be yours. And you should be able to, to sit back and say, wow, look at what I did. That's really cool. I'm really proud of that. Um, and, and, you know, the same thing to, uh, to uh, an academic I means you're starting out, um, you know, by that time you've probably identified what it is that, that you love. And, and, you know, it's, it's your students recognizing that all, students that come into your new PhD students um, don't immediately share your enthusiasm or, or, or your motivation or your dedication, but, but, you know, show them that, that this is the way to do it. You know, encourage them, um, realize that they're all different, find out what, uh, how to motivate each one of them individually. And, and, you know, if you can do that, even with your first couple of students, um, then you're well on your way to a, to a great career. Well, thank you so much for that piece of advice. Well, that's just all we've got time for today on the Researcher Podcast. We've been joined by Professor Rick Tavinsky from the University of Alberta. Rick, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening, everyone. Until next time.
You've been listening to the Researcher Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Alternatively, you can find us at www.research-app.com. Or if you fancy, you can drop me an email at joseph.fenton at researcherapp.com. Researcher is free to download on iOS, Android, or via your web browser.